Welcome to episode 70 of Larry Dowdy Mike Side. In this installment, Steve Mason shares his story. His career began in 1991 as a sportscaster videographer at WDBJ7. Today, he's founder and president of Red Velocity Incorporated. Steve, good to see you here on Zoom and great to have you on the podcast. Larry, it is great to see a friendly, familiar face again. Uh, it's been way too long, my friend. And uh, just thank you for having me on your show. And uh, just thank you for continuing to to dabble in the media business. Uh, I've always been a fan of yours. So just thank you for continuing to broadcast and for having me as your guest. Well, you're so, so kind. Of course, you and I met at Channel 7. I was doing uh, News 7 Morning. You were doing sports. Of course, with many times we just pass in the hall. Uh, <laughs> of course, fortunately, the sports department wasn't far from uh, where the morning department was when, uh, when they're on Colonial Avenue. How did you wind up in the Star City, Steve? So, Larry, it's... Uh... I'm actually, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, mm -hmm. and big Orioles fan, big Colts fan, and uh, just loves sports always. But at 5'8", 160 pounds, my, my college options for sports were very limited, but there was a sport I could play halfway decent, which was lacrosse. And uh, Roanoke College, their coach there, Scott Allison, uh, recruited me, said, we'd like you to come, you know, give it a run here. Roanoke can play. And I went down and visited, and I just... I love the team and the program, but I also the academics. I'm a, I'm dyslexic, and uh, small classrooms and and relationship with professors was paramount in my success. And Roanoke really uh, fostered that type of education, and that was really the the ceiling factor in coming to Roanoke and the Salem in the Roanoke Valley area. So I went to Roanoke College, and that's how I got here. And the rest is history. So was sports always your dream job? It wasn't. Uh, I always loved sports, grew up playing sports. But about my beginning, my sophomore year of college, I called my father and said uh, in this very profound way, I'm terrified, Dad. What the heck do I do with my life? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, uh, and he was great. He didn't miss a beat. He said, I want you to pick, you know, five things that you're passionate about and do an internship in each one of those. Mm -hmm. It was great advice. And so I said, well, I'm 5'8", 160 pounds. My career in sports playing will end in college. So I can't play. What's the next best thing? I said, well, why not? I like writing. I like storytelling. That was always, you know, uh, something fun for me growing up. So I said, well, how do those two things merge? What, why not just call one of these TV stations here, you know, around Rono College and see if I can just tag along for a bit. And the first station I called was WSLS Channel 10. And Matt Pumo, who's, I think, this now the news director or the GM there, or no, he's at Channel 7. He's, he's GM at Channel, Channel 7? 7. Yeah. He said, yeah, come on in. I'm like, he's like, come on in, watch the Redskins game and just take notes. I'm like, yes, sir. And that was the genesis. And I started doing that. And uh, that was fun. And then I did an internship in WNUV TV 54 in Maryland mm -hmm. another summer, came back, wanted to continue that. And Hank Eber, uh, who was a videographer at DBJ, his wife, Mary Ann, was one of the academic advisors at Roanoke College. And in meeting with her, I, you know, I talked to her about this and she said, well, let me call my husband. So I'm really where I am today and I'll be forever indebted to them. I went in and interned at Channel 7 and you, as you know, from working there, they they put you right in the fire and they demand 
work ethic and grit and you want to be here, you got to work your butt off. And, uh, and they're great teachers, as you know. And uh, so that's really how the broad, you know, the, the career in videography and sports casting began. When you started, did you have any idea you would be spending more time in front of the camera or was your love uh, looking through the lens? Started out as I wanted to, you know, like I wanted to be on ESPN as, as, as one of their sports guys. And I enjoyed the exhilaration of doing a live shot and, and doing the on-camera work. But the hardest part of that job was putting that camera on my shoulder and telling a story with that camera. And it was, I would come back from filming Friday Football Extra or uh, a, a game, or, and I would grab one of the veteran videographers and say, would you, you know, could you sit down and just look at my tape? And they would look and it was, they were very direct and honest <laughs> and that they taught me. And those seven, eight guys uh, were huge in, in, in forming me with whatever skill I have as a, a videographer, cinematographer, that foundation was built by those seven, eight guys at WDBJ, those videographers. Also, Mike Stevens picked up a camera. Mike would go out and shoot and Mike could shoot. And he really taught me the, the merger between the videography and the script writing. You're telling the story. The words are just nothing without the, the images. And uh, you know, he was instrumental. So many of those guys, Neil Dudley, all instrumental. Uh, and these were all, of course, the videographers uh, and, and people that worked at DBJ for all those years. Was there ever a time where you mentioned your family from Baltimore uh, you had gotten into the business here. Did you ever want to head back to Baltimore and maybe WBAL or something like that? Uh, I thought so. I, I did. There was a time, uh, there was a, a season where that was on the forefront of my mind, but everybody's so nice here. Everybody, <laughs> this is just a beautiful area to be. Uh, everybody is just nice. There's no rush hour traffic like there is in Baltimore. Uh, and then I met this, you know, I met this young lady. Uh, who was from here and grew up here. And that was really the, what sealed the deal. You know, her family was here and she, you know, that's of course my wife, Melissa, gosh, 26 years now. Uh, and she just loved this area. And wherever she was, I wanted to be. When you were doing sports, was there a particular sport you were really fond of covering? You know, Larry, I, I liked them all. and But I really, to be able to, cover ACC football and basketball was was pretty awesome. But to go out to a high school football game and watch Pulaski battle Salem or Glimver battle, you know, to, to, to see the passion of the community and the fans cheering on their sons or their daughters, to cover girls basketball and go to Floyd County and cover Alan Cantrell and the Floyd County Lady Buffaloes who won I don't know how many state champions. I mean, every, whether it was girls basketball, football, whatever it was, in this area, uh, it's like Jim Shaver at DBJ used to say, you know, sports is like church to our area. And we need to embrace that and champion that. And I followed the lead of people like him and, and uh, Mike Stevens and Roy Stanley mm -hmm. in that vein. So to answer your question, I, I really liked, I liked the, the high school and element of it of sports and, and covering that and getting to know the coaches and the players and, and, and the communities. But I also, I did enjoy like when you, I remember going to ACC basketball when they played at the Greensboro Coliseum and 
uh, in Charlotte and seeing, you know, JJ Reddick, uh, a home product, Curtis Staples, a home product, the Barber twins in, in football and so many more. I don't want to, you know, Brandon Simonis who played at Tech and there's so many more of those guys that uh, and gals that played. I, I, I guess it's the best of both worlds I enjoyed. I enjoyed covering the ACC and pro football, whether it was the Redskins or the Carolina Panthers. But I also loved just as much covering the community-driven high school sports as well. Well, and we're recording this on a Tuesday, March 28th, and we're knocking at the door of Final Four for women's basketball, and look where the Tech ladies are. I watched that game uh, with my wife and my son, who just graduated from Tech. My daughter's a junior there, and my youngest son just got into Tech, so I'm three for three. <laughs> uh, my dad was my dad went to tech. My brother went to tech. So, so excited to see those ladies uh, make it that far. Oh my gosh, what a story that is. First time in program history for them to do that. But if you watch the interviews, I'm sure you've watched, I mean, you just fall in love with these these ladies. Mm -hmm. I mean, their work and their grit, determination, toughness, but then they just have these personalities. They're just vibrant, true, authentic personalities that I mean, how can you not just fall in love with these gals? You know, I mean, yeah. good for them. I mean, they're 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 champions. Okay, let's so let's fast forward a little bit from the Channel Seven days to '97. You left TV for Red Velocity. Tell us about that name, number one, and what told you there was a need for a service like this in the Star City. Well, you know, I loved DB, WDBJ in my time there, and. You know, I, I didn't think I, I really didn't know if I was ever going to, I didn't know if I was ever going to leave. I just loved it. But uh, actually it was, I was at a Super Bowl party and a guy named Dave Fuller, uh, Dave runs a frontline raw, tough mission uh, organization called Answering the Call. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, we were talking at this Super Bowl function and he's like, yeah, I, I'm getting ready to go to Africa, I'm getting ready to go to Sudan. I'm like, Sudan? isn't there a civil war going on there? He's like, yeah, I just like passed the salt. And he's like, yeah, because when war comes to some of these, these impoverished areas, uh, you know, international assistance ceases, stops. So he's like, that's the best time to go in there because those folks really need medicine and food and, and we're, we're, we can bring Bibles in there and, and, and really just go and, and, you know, just be a part of of, of those villages and those people and just help in any way we can. And it just hit me right then. I'm like, Hey man, what if we take a camera? I didn't even think maybe I should ask channel seven. If I can take a $30,000 beta cam camera in there, maybe I should think I didn't think, you know? Uh, and I just said, and he's like, Hey, yeah, that'd be great. And so, you know, I went to Mike Stevens and, you know, Mike, you know, he, he was supportive. He's like, Hey, I got one of my guys trying to do something decent you know, trying to help do something with whatever gifts he has to do. So Mike supported it. And, you know, you know, Mike was at a level there where he could go and he had some level of persuasion in there and, and very well-respected guy there. So I said, look, I'll, I'll bring stories back. Well, uh, and it's local people from Roanoke going. So this might be of interest to the news, you know, to do these stories, you know, and, and they're like, take it, go take the camera. And that going over there and filming those stories and writing and, Editing and and in the plight of the the, the persecuted Sudanese uh, Christians there, man, that really uh, it was telling that story that really said to me, wait a minute, maybe there's all learning all these skills at Channel Seven, you know, videography, cinematography, telling the story with the camera, writing, uh, you know, being able to do on camera work, 
maybe there's an, another reason for that. And that's really the beginning of that thought process that, hey, maybe, you know, maybe I need to be behind the camera and, and really trying to hone that skill as best I can. So that was really, you know, the beginning of me saying, hey, and that's what ultimately led to. I worked for Answering the Call for two years after leaving DBJ. And that started what is now Red Velocity. We've done I don't know how many, 20 trips into Africa now. We've been, we filmed in the Middle East. We filmed in uh, India. We filmed in Central America and Eastern, all over Eastern Europe. And I cannot tell you how blessed I have been to go to these places and film these stories of, of incredible heroes. I remember you doing a, some video work in a missions trip uh, with a mutual friend, uh, Robert Kraus. And, oh, you, you know, he, he tells me about the story of uh, the trip to Sudan. I mean, that's not as easy as it sounds. You know, picking up a camera and getting into a country like this is not that easy, is it? Well, ignorance is bliss. And uh, uh, it, it, no, it was not, it was very, it was difficult and challenging, but I don't know. I was on cloud nine to be there. Uh, and again, I am the most flawed guy there is on the planet. I believe that I am one of the most flawed people there is. So, you know, I say this with, you know, not to say, look at anything I've done. The, the main message is anybody who's flawed out there and made hundreds and hundreds of mistakes, you can still do, you know, you can do things to help. Just make it about others, you know, make it about, uh, try to make your life about helping others, you know, for God. And again, in, in the midst of flaws, in the midst of just all of our, all of us, all of our junk, you know, that's the message is like, hey man, there's, a, you have a purpose. But no, it was, yeah, Kraus got a nickname over there because, you know, he's big and he's bald. <laughs> right. So in the Sudanese language, they called him Majonga Chut, which means bull with no horns. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's this big guy, you know, this big bald guy with, you know, and he's this big guy and all these little Sudanese, well, they're warriors too, but they called him Majonga Chut. That that was his nickname. Oh, I, you know, that was pretty cool. I love that. So, I, you know, I do. You see him. I'll call him a Junga Chut, and he'll <laughs> laugh at that. Do you feel you're a storyteller with your videos? I hope so. That's who I think I am. I think that's that's what I have a passion for, and I think the camera is that main vehicle. Uh, and I've fallen in love with with the camera and what it can do. I've also fallen in love with lighting, and you know, again, Lawrence Young uh, was the first. They all, all the videographers at seven were really good at lighting. Uh, but Lawrence, I think, had that was really what his, his shtick. You know, I think he really enjoyed that. And he would go out and we would shoot Roanoke Express hockey segments. And I would watch his lighting. And I just was like, how did you do that? How did, what, why did you put the light there? What choice did you make to do that? What emotion are you trying to evoke with that light and where you put the camera? And so all those guys really fed that fire in me. Greg Moore for another one, mm -hmm. uh, Scott Ayers, uh, Lynn Eller, uh, you know, Dennis Brown, uh, Grant Plaskin. They all, you know, fed that fire because, you know, as you remember, each one of those videographers had, you know, they were, oh, he's known for this. He's known for that. You know, they all were good at everything, but they all had this one niche that that's what they loved. And I tried to I tried to glean something from each one of them in what what they loved and uh you know hopefully i'm a what would you call it? i'm just a i'm a melting pot hopefully of all the all their things you know <laughs> hopefully i've taken all their things and just 
you know, woven together something. In your opinion, what makes a successful campaign? Because we, we mentioned the documentaries you've done, but you've done uh, ads, you've done public service announcements, you've done promotional material. What makes a successful campaign for Steve Mason? Wow, that's a really that's a really uh, good question, Larry. I think it's just I just go back to personal. It's I'm a big underdog guy. Mm-hmm. I think I got a lot of that from Dave Fuller, who's you know been a mentor and my best friend for you know twenty some years. Uh, but he just always loved the underdog. He always loved that you know whether it was somebody in Sudan or New York where it was, just somebody trying to do good and trying to you know fight and. Uh, for what's right. And I've always been drawn to that. So if it's, if it's a campaign or, you know, an organization or something that really is trying to help people, that's always top of my list. You know, we want to do our best at everything we, we do in our profession. And we, we do jobs that companies hire us to do, and we're going to do our darnest best to everything we can to make that, you know, I'm passionate about that. A successful campaign. I think it's like, it's one, it's, it's really, it, it, it's, at its most elementary level, I think for me is when I look at that LCD screen or that camera and, and through that lens and I just see where the lighting and the whether it's the actor or the person on camera doing an interview and it's just, you know, when that all comes together, it's everything. I, I've poured everything I can into that to do whatever abilities I have to make it the best it can be. That's successful to me, just giving everything I can every single time to make it the best. And I know that sounds cliche, but I don't know how you measure, how else do you measure it than that for me? I, I just think it's, is that the best we can do? Is that the best our team can do? And I'm very, very fortunate and blessed to be around. You know, there's like seven or eight of us uh, that are all working together at Red Velocity and they all have incredible gifts and I love the team. So what, another thing that makes the campaign successful is just watching the team come together to work for one common goal. I'm, I'm a team guy and Uh, It's not about me. It's about what we're trying to accomplish and about our team and working together and to produce something that uh, means something. I I do have a very soft place uh, in my heart for nonprofits. Uh, We've we've been very blessed to do a lot of work for nonprofits and because they're fighting, they're clawing. They don't have big marketing dollars. They don't have a a lot of, uh, you know, resources for exposure. So, when we're able to work and in, in for nonprofits, and you know, that's always has a great, great meaning for me. Steve, and it's got to be uh, fulfilling for you. You go and you shoot the piece, and you're looking for that oh wow moment through your eyes, which you may or may not see at that time. But then the folks who got you to do the job, they're watching it. They're mesmerized. They're it's like oh wow. I guess that in itself is success for you. When we do a good job, they're paying us for a service. So when we we try to, if we can exceed their expectation, that's awesome. If it just, but to see that smile and see them happy, that that's all. But I'll, I'll tell you, I I've come back from Africa, and it's it's like you know, I'll start editing at you know nine a.m. Some of my fondest memories and whatever I've done is on a documentary from Africa, and it'll be like four a.m. and I'm still working because I can't put it down. <laughs> When you're merging these images with music and sound, I mean, I've been in tears watching this all come together. And just, it's just like, this is, you know, how can an idiot screw up like me be doing this? <laughs> I, I, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for that. You know, I'm, I'm very, you know, blessed and fortunate to be 
to be a part of those things. Steve, what do you think has been the biggest technological leap to uh, help in what you do today? Is it uh, video editing on computers? Is it a smartphone to shoot video or using drones? Larry, all the everything you just said is all the above. You know, the, the big, you know, from just some studying I've done, you know, all movies used to be shot on 35 millimeter film, mm-hmm. you know, on film. And the, that is still the purest form of uh, uh, media capture, in my opinion. It's just mushy and beautiful. And, and I never had the privilege of working on film, but I've seen it and and studied it. The, the biggest advancement to me is that they have designed a super 35 millimeter sensor digitally that now is in, encased in a digital box, you know, so you can capture video digitally. And now it's more affordable because film is immensely expensive. And not only is the digital era so aff- it's for affordable, but it's it's immediate. You can now, you don't have to wait for dailies from a magazine of film from the day to dailies to bring back to your director and go, how's it look? I mean, you can do playback right there instantaneously on set and your client, uh, the actor, whoever can watch it immediately and see that. We've been fortunate that we, we work on red, it's called Red One Camera. It's designed by Jim Gerard. He was the CEO of Oakley Sunglasses and owner of Onus. He was a film aficionado and he developed the Red One Camera. It was the first of its kind, super 35 millimeter cinematic camera mm-hmm. uh, of its kind. And that is now just, you know, as you know, when one thing comes out, now all competitors are like, well, we got to build one too. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just started this, this uh, huge avalanche of competition but I've stayed with red cameras since 2007 or eight and are now in our fourth or fifth generation. And we now have three of them here that we use at Red Velocity and they're awesome. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. So yes, uh, that digital event, it's just, it's now movies are being shot digitally. Mm-hmm. Big directors who said, I'll never switch. You know, some of them are switching and using digital, some shoot on film still, but they're switching. And it's also not these massive magazines with, you know, now these small cameras, look at the drone, this little camera, this big shoots at 6K, 4K, uh, a, a phone. I, I cannot, I'm, maybe I'm old school still, never say never, but I, I, I can never take my iPhone and shoot a, a commercial. I just, <laughs> there's still the shallow depth of field. I know some of these cameras have a filter with, with portrait mode that's shallow depth of field. It's still not the same. You, you know, the dynamic range, mm-hmm. you can't push the whites and blacks in post like you can with these with 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 uh, the bigger format cameras. So but that's been the incredible advancement. It is. It's amazing. Do you expect AI, artificial intelligence to to play more of a, a role going forward in your business? Well, yes. Uh, and that's kind of scary. I can't see I can't see see uh, AI. Is cinematography. Uh, again, I'm old school. I, I still think there's something about something real and raw and beautiful about the actor working with a, a director and a and a DP and the gaffer and the key grips and 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 that creates the story. I still think acting and you know that rawness of capturing that 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 art form of of acting or the lighting and the cinematography in its authentic state is still king and it will always be as far as I'm concerned. 
Uh, I know we're using blue screens and green screens, and a lot of the movies are done now. Uh, my son's got me watching Game of Thrones right now uh, as a way for him and I to connect. And I've, I'm just like, and I know there's a lot of CG in that, but the acting is still, the writing is still really, the conflict that they're creating in that series is still like, gosh, these there's some brilliant people on this planet. Uh, so yes, I think AI, especially with the scripting, like you, you know, now you can say to your AI, you know, software, Hey, write me this. I'm worried about education because kids can say, Hey, write me the this term paper on the Gettysburg address. <laughs> and all of a sudden 20 minutes later, it's written. That scares me because, you know, the revisions, you know, my professors at Roanoke college and, and even high school that beat on me a little bit, like, Hey. No, this, go back to the drawing board. This is good, but it needs to be refined. And what is the that process of lear learning is still very important. And I'm so I'm a little worried about that. But yes, it's it's growing leaps and bounds the AI world, and it's only going to get it's you know money drives the ship in a lot of respects. So it's going to it's going to get bigger and better. And watch Google and all everybody else is going to hey. We need to have our own AI programs and it's coming. I'm concerned. I think it's exciting what it can do, but I also think there's nothing that can replace the human mind that that scripts and writes from the heart and communicates that story. How can AI replace somebody being in the middle of Sudan like Dave Fuller for 25 years, over 150 trips through war zones, through being arrested, his plane or his vehicle being shot at? And how can you replace that story of what really happened through a synthetic uh, medium. I don't, I don't think you can, but I think it does have its place where that all balances. You're a much wiser guy than me. So I'd like to hear what the experts say. Steve, we've got to leave it right there. How can folks learn more about you, your company, Red Velocity Incorporated? How do they learn more about the company? So I, I think the best way is uh, you can follow us on social media uh, we were on Instagram, we're on Facebook. Uh, that's one way to follow us. And we are always posting behind the scenes videos and, and introducing our team and redvelocityinc.com, www.redvelocityinc.com is our website. And uh, there's a way to contact us there. Just say hi. And uh, we'd love to hear, you know, what everybody's doing. And, and we love when people call us and say, Hey, Here's what's there's something creative going on in Rono. You know, you guys should come film this. We love to hear those things. So, uh, and we just love staying in touch with with everybody. But uh, especially you, Larry, it's it's so good to see you. I'm serious, man. You have not changed. You do not change. What is what's in the water there? Uh, where's the fountain of youth? Uh, and please keep doing these these the podcasts. Your talent and, and you benefit this this region tremendously. You are uh, you are so kind, and I have enjoyed this uh, thirty plus minutes with you, uh, Steve Mason. I just thanks for uh, for letting us catch up on your career. Uh, you're a true storyteller with a vision to bring any story to life before our eyes. And I can't thank you enough. And thank you for taking time out of your busy day at Red Velocity. Thank you, Larry. Lunch is on me. Thanks for listening to Episode 70 of Larry Dowdy Mike Side with former WDBJ7 sportscaster Steve Mason, today founder and president of Red Velocity Incorporated. You can find Larry Dowdy Mike Side wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to share this podcast with someone by clicking on the share button. Join me next time for Larry Dowdy Mike Side. See you then.